Hello, everyone, and welcome back to As We Like It, our Shakespeare discussion podcast where we watch movies based on his plays and talk about their qualities, both as movies and as interpretations. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. So two episodes ago, I promised that we would watch Ron, and that was uh, the consequence of me not having done my homework. I decided to postpone it because it turns out that a 4K restoration of Ron has just come out and has been making the circuit uh, at some theaters. I asked that we postpone it only after Avon and Mark had already watched the film so that I could see it in theaters. Now, I had never seen Ron before, unlike my other suggestions, so I was excited to be able to see it for the first time in theaters, and oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of our reaction, too, and we just watched it on an iPad on the old, you know, non-restored file, and it was, I can't say it was great quality, but still, yeah. (laughs) Usually it's... Now, the question that none of us is going to be able to answer, of course, is, like, we've seen one version and john you've seen another but is there any aside from the restoration is there any um difference difference in terms of content or editing or anything like that not to the best of my knowledge i think it's only really like a clean picture clean okay yeah yeah restored in color and things like that okay so yeah you uh you tweeted about it when you walked out of the theater i gather and that we're uh bit blown away uh yeah oh my god like without qualification one of the greatest movies i've seen in my entire life (laughs) well and that certainly because i mean it's visually amazing an amazing spectacle Mm -hmm. so i mean that is really is the way to see it i i would i would imagine Yeah. yeah i could feel while we were watching it that we were definitely missing yeah, some of the visual effects. I mean, not 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 their effects, but just the visual. Yeah, because they were cinematography of things. They weren't yeah. effects. He built a castle and burnt it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, no, but the just the just uh, impact of the visuals, which are just hard to capture yeah. on a small. Well, screen. and and the stunning on location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean that scenery. scene halfway through where Hidetora is just walking out of the castle in yeah. disbelief as it burns behind him and the yeah. army's part and he just walks through is maybe the most astonishing shot I have ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe let's say a little bit about what the movie is for those who haven't seen it. Cause it's not really a, I mean, I'm sure many people do know about it, but it's not the most obvious from its title, what it is. Yes. So Ron is more or less a version of King Lear directed by uh, Japanese, probably the most famous director uh, from Japan, Akira Kurosawa. It came out in 1985. The name means in Japanese, it means chaos or rebellion. Um, and it is, like I said, more or less a, sto- uh, a version of King Lear. According to what I have read, Ron, um, like Kurosawa actually was wanting to make a movie based on uh, an historical Japanese warlord who mm-hmm. happened to have three sons who were very loyal to him, uh, Mori Motonari. And I'm sorry, I don't speak Japanese, so that's probably mm-hmm. very mispronounced. Um, it says that he was famous for having three sons, all loyal and talented. And Kurosawa began imagining what would have happened had the sons turned bad. So he mm-hmm. started just writing this, this sc- story, uh, you know, in which 
uh, Motonari decides to step down and his sons fight each other. And it was pointed out to him that that is very similar to King Lear. So only after did he decided to make this project did he then purposefully incorporate King Lear into mm-hmm. it. Now, he kept it about three sons, whereas King Lear, of course, is about the daughters, um, Regan, Goneril, and Cordelia. But other than that, I found it to be very, very... Um, faithful? Or? It's not exactly no, faithful exactly to faithful, the story, but, but it it has a strong... Faithful um, to the structure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it has... It, it, it follows it corresponds the Yeah, it corresponds to the, strongly. To the point. And it, it, it hits many of the same emotional points mm-hmm. and sort of... Uh, and, and some key mm-hmm. character elements. Yeah. And I gather, in addition to the, the, the sort of uh, historical inspiration... It's also in particular inspired by what is a, uh, a saying or an aphorism or whatever, this idea that three arrows are stronger than one. Right. That, that historical warlord, one of the things he's known, he's known for, for is saying. this sort of folk tale story of him doing that parable about one arrow is easily yeah, broken, three arrows that was the together particular... are not broken. And that's his, one of the things for which he's known in Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which comes in the early, one of the first scenes of the movie uh, in which Saburo then, uh, the youngest son, disproves the saying. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it's it's in, it's not inspired by King Lear, but it, it shadows King Lear or something like that, maybe you could say. Mm. You can feel it behind it the whole way through, but it has significant points of plot mm-hmm. difference, of course. But I would say, like, in spite of that, though, I think it's almost more loyal a version of King Lear than a lot of other things because of mm. its tone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, although, in, in saying that, I will also say that I have told several people immediately um, upon watching it that it somehow managed to be, manages to be even bleaker and more yeah. cynical than King Lear, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, we can... Uh talk more about how it matches King Lear or doesn't. So yeah, the structural relations to King Lear, like I said, the uh, big obvious difference was three sons versus Mm -hmm. three daughters. And normally I would not really be okay with, you know, turning a female character to a male character. But in King Lear, I don't know, like with the exception of Cordelia, like Goneril and Regan aren't very strong characters. Yeah. Well, they're not (laughs) admirable and they're not really, in the play as much. I mean, they're kind of proxies for their husband's armies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so what I really liked about Ron was that with the three sons, then two of them had wives and the wives then brought a really interesting depth. They were the more interesting characters mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Well, they had history in a way that the sons didn't. The sons were just sons who then, yeah. you know, yeah, they functioned as fathers. sons of their father. And that was their and only role. Basically, that was it. Whereas both wives had no, they too were daughters of their family, and, and in a way yeah. were, were representatives of their family. They but they had particular motivations, and they had a history to them and a yeah. complexity of yeah. character. Yeah. And it's interesting that they both, in a sense, have the same or similar backstory, but they take it to completely opposite conclusions. Mm-hmm. So Lady Kaida takes it and wants revenge for the way her family was destroyed. Lady Sue becomes a Buddhist uh, devotee, and. It takes a path of peaceful resistance yeah. to, in spite of her family having been destroyed, both by Hidetora. 
Yeah. So I and actually Kurosawa made a version of Macbeth. Yeah, I've heard this. I haven't seen it either. Throne. Called Throne of Blood. And there's actually a lot of kind of visual similarities because the end of Throne of Blood has the Macbeth character surrounded by air or arrows are being shot at him and he's running from them and then ultimately he's killed by a stray arrow and the kind of major battle scene halfway through ron uh where the aforementioned exit from the burning castle happens like there's some very visually similar shots with uh hidetora running from arrows and uh, you know but he, obviously he doesn't die in this in this situation um but i found that lady kaede reminded me a lot of kind of typical presentations of or understandings of Lady Macbeth. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Though her, her driving force is revenge, not ambition, but nonetheless it comes off in many of the same kind of character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the way that she manipulated ultimately both of her husbands into mm-hmm. kind of seizing power. So I feel like we should... It's so hard to talk about because this is such a huge movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Hidetora is the Lear character and mm-hmm. Taro is his oldest son, I believe. Yeah. Let's check my cheat sheet here. Uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jiro is yeah. the middle one, middle but son. he's the one that uh, survives his elder brother and then takes over. Right. Yeah. So Jiro is the one who sort of is around longest. Yeah. Other than Saburo, who's the youngest son, the Cordelia equivalent. Yes. So Hidetora at the beginning says, I'm giving up my power to you three sons. And. Well, actually, he says it's different than Lear. He says, I'm giving my power essentially to my eldest son. Yeah. Yes. And you other two, you have to be his loyal followers. Uh, I'll give you, you know, some inheritance. You can have a castle each, but but he doesn't split his kingdom quite the same way. And this is where the parable of the three arrows comes because mm-hmm. they're each able to break one arrow individually. But when they hold three arrows together, they can't except for when they get to Saburo who breaks them over his knee and says it's still possible. So rather than in Lear where Lear is basically telling his daughters, you know, to, to honor him, to, um, honor and take care of him and uh, well no but Lear makes his daughters compete for his affection oh Mm -hmm. yes to show show to him how much they love him so that they are going to get an inheritance from him yes and Cordelia says I I I won't do this because my sisters are faking and my love is true and so Lear gets mad out of vanity and and banishes her whereas in 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 Ron uh, Saburo doesn't say this and in fact Hidetora never has his son's appeal to his vanity he just says i'm giving it to taro but you three have to stand together and Mm -hmm. saburo says this is ridiculous you took power by any means necessary and you were bloodthirsty and you know that that's going to happen as soon as you step down and And how can you expect us and your son how can you expect anyone else not to act the same way you did when you've acted not just the sons but the whole world exactly uh and so it is out of kind of curiosity that his plans are being called into question that causes hidetora to exile Saburo. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think it's very, they're, they're different, but they're very, um, they're cultural equivalents perhaps is the right way to put it Mm. because Hidetoro acts out of pride, essentially. How dare his sons not, one of his sons not act with filial piety and tell him that everything he thinks is smart and intelligent and the right decision and any kind of, um, lack of, of, obeying him is a rebellion that he cannot tolerate. Lear 
is asking for um, the same kind of filial piety, but expressed as daughters should express it through love and affection and calling him um, their, you know, their all in life, that they are devoted to him. And Cordelia being refusing to express that is unforgivable. So they both have the same sort of reaction. Uh, and bo in both cases, the youngest child refuse, speaks a truth that is unpalatable to the father, something that is true and that he cannot handle hearing about. Yes. Um, so Cordelia says that you're, you know, my, my sisters are just flattering. And Saburo says, you can't expect anyone to be kind when you've never been kind. Yes. And so basically immediately from this point, uh, things start to go bad. Yeah. Because he gives uh, Taro the first castle, it's called. He gives mm -hmm. Jiro the second castle and says, I'm going to live with Taro, but we'll visit all castles and, you know, all of my sons mm -hmm. will, will host me. And then he exiles uh, Saburo, who... Uh, is taken in by Fujimaki, who is a warlord from the first scene. There were two other warlords at the first scene, Fujimaki and Ayabe. Mm -hmm. And Fujimaki says, I want you as my son-in-law, not because you're exiled. Well, you know, I would have wanted you because of your holdings, but now I want you because I know you're honorable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're honorable and you're intelligent, and I want that for my daughter. And yes. that, that reflects, I guess, the leer in that Cordelia is, is originally going to be um, she, she's originally betrothed to someone who breaks it off, mm -hmm. but then she is, she does marry the King of the King France. France. And the King of France essentially says, for similar reasons, yeah, your, your character your honesty, has proven itself yeah. and I don't care that you have no inheritance. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be married to an honest, intelligent woman. Yeah. Yes. And so he also, um, exiles Tango, who is one of his servants mm -hmm. who was, um, Agreeing with Saburo. We tried to defend Saburo, yeah. Yes. And that's a simplification of the what is in the original play, a double plot where you have another father-son with a good son, bad son, and then he banishes the good son mm -hmm. um, because he's taken in by the bad son. So there's this whole double plotting, same basic setup. That's just simplified in, uh, in Ron for i think pretty good reasons yes you don't get edgar and edmund you just get edmund is that yeah. right uh you just get edgar, edgar edmund's sorry, yes. the bad one edmund's the bad one edgar's the good son yeah i remember that because of our <laughs> child i was about to say why did you after the bad one <laughs> why did you name your kid after the bad one? i know all of the edmunds are bad and yet we named him after them i still i'm just holding it for edmund blackadder <laughs> so yes um so that's where we start the film is taro is in charge jiro has a castle saburo mm -hmm. and tango are exiled saburo goes with fujimaki and tango says i'm going to follow hiratora and help him when he needs help because i know he will need help mm -hmm. so even though i'm supposed to be in exile yeah yes so immediately when they get to the first castle um hiratora does not like the fact that he's no longer in control. And this is largely because Lady Kaede is forcing Taro to remove all power that his father had. Taro was, was okay, marginally okay with it. But... Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we, I don't... It's hard to say, but I, I would say that they, Taro is characterized as being actually quite fine and dutiful and doesn't seem to be particularly worried about his father getting holding whatever position he does and is quite 
quickly told by Lady Kaida, his wife, that he can't, uh, you know, that sort of typical thing of, are you going to let him push you around? Aren't you in charge now? Why are you letting him do this? And are you, if you let his concubines walk in front of me, then I am dishonored in my own home and all of this stuff. Uh, and it makes him uh, turn against his father when it doesn't seem like he's going to at the beginning. Yes. And so this causes Kiwami, who is the full jester equivalent, uh, which I read and do not take me to this, but is not really a character that is typical in Japan. I wondered about that because he stood out so strongly in dress and action and speaking against all the other characters. But I I had no idea what, you know, is this a thing? Is there there a jester figure in... Mm. Japanese culture or not, because I, I just don't know enough about the culture. But it was such a striking physical performance. Oh, I mean, it, it was, was almost more like dance or something than uh, a pantomime. Or pantomime, or you know, where it's yeah. where you're yeah. doing strong. But it was I've, really powerful and affecting. I found. I've got to say, just jumping ahead for a minute, he's my favorite character. Favorite character in yeah. the play, it in was the movie. Incredible. He's so, just amazing. Well, so I don't know if you were paying attention to the opening credits, but you know, it was. A Japanese-French co-production, so all mm-hmm. the credits were in Japanese and French. And there was one c- person who was just credited as Peter, and I, that's it. Yeah, I didn't notice it in the credits, but I did. I was reading about it, uh, reading up on the background of the movie, and I saw that. Yeah, the, the actor who plays him is just Peter. Just known as Peter. And apparently, according to the IMDb trivia, so this could be entirely incorrect, but apparently he was known for being kind of flamboyant in the way he danced, and people called him Peter Pan. <laughs> so that's where the name came from, and that's that would make sense with this performance. Yeah. yeah that so any stage name. Yes. So anyway, Lady Kaede makes Taro kind of revoke a decision, and Kiwami makes fun of him, and this is what drives the Tar- uh, Taro's troops against Hidetora's troops, and ultimately Taro exiles Hidetora. Yeah, and says, "You go. You can't stay here anymore." Uh, you you aren't willing to accept the terms that you yourself set, and you can't be in my house anymore. So Tar- uh, Hidetora leaves with his 30 samurai and goes to Saburo's castle, but is turned away, basically. Um, yeah. And says, fine, I will take refuge in the third castle, which was to belong to Saburo, but since Saburo is exiled, Saburo's okay. samurai have left to join Saburo. And mm-hmm. so Hidetora goes to that castle, and it turns out that it was a trap for him, and Saburo and Taro siege it, kill all 30 of his samurai, kill Hidetora's concubines. This is this beautiful scene where... Well, they kill themselves, but yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry. His concubines commit suicide in front of uh, Hidetora, and this is this beautiful scene with the burning castle. And something that struck me was um, when Hidetora was retreating into the castle, he pulls his sword out and tries to protect himself and it breaks and that's when he mm-hmm. runs up mm-hmm. and then he's stuck in this burning keep he pulls mm-hmm. his sword out try and commit spooku and he he can't, he can't. Yeah. So, i know and he waits till that last moment and you you see him sort of fighting till the last moment and then everyone else has has done so has either mm-hmm. died or has killed themselves because to be taken of course is impossible and then he can't even do that and that's mm-hmm. i think what breaks what his mind yeah. yes and this is kind of where the madness equivalent of Lear takes place mm-hmm. So he can't find any weapons and ends up just kind of walking out in this maddened state. And it's this amazing, beautiful, very affecting shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this battle, Taro is killed. By the, his brother, essentially. Yes. Uh, by like a his brother's, was, his brother's general. general. Yeah. 
So Taro is killed, making Saburo now the leader of the kingdom. And Saburo moves so into... So no, the... no, not making Saburo. Making oh, Jiro. Sorry, Jiro. Jiro, yeah. yes. So Jiro moves into the castle. The and this is where this incredibly bizarre scene with Lady Kaede yeah. comes. And <laughs> she's... It, it seems as if she's, like, saying, you know, you... Uh, my my brother would be honored for you to take his place. And then at the last second, she pins him, and it's really tense. Uh, and she's, like, cutting his neck and saying, like, you killed him, didn't you? You killed him. And you think she's mad because mm-hmm. of the obvious... Because uh, her husband was killed by her, bro- her brother-in-law. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then she it gets sexual and weird and she like licks the blood off and they make love <laughs> and mark could not handle that scene <laughs> no, that's a, a, a lot of the audience that i saw it with couldn't either and like yeah. you know there were some like uncomfortable titters and whatnot mm-hmm. and then she basically says i i am to be your wife now and you have to kill lady sue your the, your wife there's Do, a weird vampirism sort of vibe to that mm-hmm. Like she's gaining strength from gaining him or something. Gaining strength from or 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 controlling him by mm-hmm. licking his blood or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very it's a strange but it's, it's a powerful st- scene. But yeah. it's a strange and um, all the way through the I've got to say all the way through the movie there was so many layers that I knew I was missing because the physicality. I know I'm leaping ahead here, but. Um, is so important, like how people move their bodies and how they sit or stand or hold their arms together or don't or whatever is clearly so very crucial. And I mean, I know in my vague way about how that's important in Japanese culture and like the way Lady Kaede walked, for instance, and, you know, all these things. And there are moments when they they move in, and they, they interact in ways that I, I can tell must be really significant for character. And I know I'm missing something because I'm not reading the body language correctly. And that scene, part of it felt like I was probably missing stuff. But also part of it was just, I think it was meant to be weird and, mm-hmm. and highly upsetting. Yes. So at this point, we'd only really met Lady Sue in one scene. But it's established that she's like just very sweet and kind and generous and very pious in her Buddhist faith. Mm-hmm. So... She- she sends or she makes Jiro send his general, the same general who killed Taro, to kill to take Lady Sue's head. And he the, does not want to. The most amazing scene happens where mm-hmm. he brings back what you think is the head and you're she dreading said, and she told him, she said, Bring it back, put it in salt so that I will I, I can see it. I don't want it rotting before I can see her face. I need to know it's her head. Yes. Which is highly disturbing. So he brings back this parcel and makes her unwrap it and it is the head of a fox statue covered in salt. Mm-hmm. And he gives this great monologue about how foxes can impersonate women. And they've been known to do so in this area and cause men to make horrible decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a very pointed story, which he, pretend- wait, I mean, he pretends isn't the right word because everybody knows what he's saying. Yeah. But, but he pretends delivers he's saying it, he so, cut off Sue's yeah. head mm-hmm. and it wasn't Sue, it was a fox. And look, mm-hmm. I've brought her to you. Uh, but yes, what he's yes. really telling Jiro is you are being controlled by this demon woman don't let her control you yeah and uh lady kaide is upset shall we say (laughs) yeah very very (laughs) upset extremely angry about this so meanwhile uh by this point hidetora is entirely mad and kiwami is the only person in his kind of 
group who is not killed with the exception of Tongo, who is yeah. still not found them. So they're just wandering on this volcanic plain and they end up finally meeting Tongo who helps them take refuge. And what it turns out is the house of Tsurumaru, who is Lady Sue's brother mm-hmm. and who is blind. Has been blinded by Hidetora uh, after Hidetora killed all of Lady Sue and his family and took the castle from them. Which is a bit so, of a shift from the source material of the of King Lear in that it's not the Lear character who blinds the man, but uh, the the two... One of the daughters. The two, is the two of them together, I think? I or I can't The husband now. of one of the daughters yeah. has um, a man who is loyal to Lear. To Lear. Blinded. Yeah. Well, yeah. and isn't Gloucester uh, Edgar's father? Gloucester is Edgar and Edmund's father. Yeah. So the relationship is different, but very clearly it's the oh, it's same. meant to echo it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a blinded person. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely. And that's one of the, the uh, uh, running motifs in Lear is this whole idea of blindness and sight. So Lear is metaphorically blinded um, and... Uh, Gloucester is is literally blinded, but then afterwards he becomes he he it's gains true talent. sight insight, and he realizes that he was wrong about um, Edgar and mm-hmm. uh, so that and the, throughout there's there's um, you know motifs and and imagery about sightedness and blindness mm-hmm. um, as one of the kind of s- strong central uh, symbols, right, right, which I don't think is carried out from what i can tell as much in ron but the inclusion of the blind boy and from that point on we when he recurs in the in the movie uh he's a very strong symbolic force Mm -hmm. as he walks through the part the scenes that he's in Mm -hmm. and in his blindness are he's a powerful force in them yes and this scene kind of takes the place of the storm scene in lear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i thought it was so much more affecting than any version of the storm scene i've seen Wow, that storm scene I've seen is fun to say. Anyway, <laughs> because they, well, okay, so one, Hidetora having blinded Tsurumaru kind of shows that as compared to Lear, where Lear was not necessarily a great man, but he wasn't a tyrant. Like Hidetora was clearly a tyrant. Uh, well, now he's relying on the, the hospitality. harmed. Yes. Yeah. But then Tsurumaru says that the only thing he has and that, keeps him happy is his flute mm-hmm. and he plays a a song for Hidetora on his flute which is beautiful and haunting and he it, it yeah. dr- this dr- sort of only mm-hmm. complicates the madness that Hidetora is experiencing mm-hmm. uh yeah the yeah that I mean that is an important distinction between Ron and Lear from the very beginning which is that Lear Lear's flaw, if you take the shape, you know, if you take that approach to tragedy, what is Lear's flaw is sort of self, it's complacency and a willingness to be flattered. It's an error in judgment, mm. really. That's as much as you can accuse him of at the beginning. We're given no you backstory. Never get, you never get a sense no. that he's a bad king while you, he was king. You get no backstory about his kingship and no reason to believe that he did anything wrong or has ever harmed any of his three daughters or their husbands. There's no suggestion that their husbands have any reason to be, you know, to want to re- revenge on him or anything. So his his error is a lack of 
sort of insight into people, as you say. Whereas in Ron, Hidetora clearly has done things that are wrong. And it becomes quite clear. He's treated, you know, Lady Sue's family and Lady Kaede's family. He has ruthlessly slaughtered his enemies uh, and possibly in treacherous manners. That's not made completely clear, but it's hinted at and has acted in a way that I'm not saying that he deserves what happens to him necessarily, but he's by no means as, as innocent a victim as Lear is. So there is a sense in which there seems to be a punishment for past actions. Certainly Kaide thinks there is. She mm. believes she's punishing him and the rest of the family for past actions in a way that it really isn't in Lear at all. There's no, Regan and Goneril never justify themselves on the grounds of uh, avenging themselves or punishing Lear for past actions. They basically just say we owe him nothing and therefore we'll do whatever we want. So there's a, there's a, there is a difference in that sort of justification and in the character of Lear and Ron. Uh, sorry, Hidetora. Yes. Um, and I'm only really kind of recounting the plot because it's the most effective way that I can think of to mm -hmm. cover oh, things no, I, as they come up. And I, I think it's worth it because it's, it's a complicated yeah. story. Yes. I mean, it's a three-hour movie. There's a lot that goes on in it. So it's, it's worth kind of keeping track of what happens. And, and at this point, kind of Tango leaves and says, I'm getting Saburo because he's the only person who's faithful to Hidetora. Mm -hmm. And Hidetora has multiple, through, at multiple times refused Saburo's help. Well, and Hidetora at this face. Mm -hmm, and at this point, well, Hidetora, in his moments of sort of semi-lucidity, says, "How can I face Saburo? I have he has realized now that he's mad. He's realized how much he has wronged him, and he says, "I can't, I can't face him. I can't talk to him. He, how could he want to see me? How could I can't, I can't go to him because I have been so horrible to him." And Tango finally says, I don't care whether you want me to or not. You need someone to help you. And he needs to know you're here. And, and heads yeah. off to get him. And, and cutting a lot of corners, this ends up with Lear, Hidetora, <laughs> and um, Kiwami wandering the ruins of the castle. Mm -hmm. uh, while Saburo and his army face off against Jiro and his army. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a standoff. Complicating this is that the two warlords from the beginning are there watching standing on the mm -hmm. borders of the country, yeah. which appear to be two facing hills overlooking the battle scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the second son tells the third son, okay, you can get dad mm -hmm. and you have to leave and there's no fight, but this is lady Kaide manipulating saying that when he goes to, he clearly he knows where Hidetora is. So when he goes, follow him and kill them both. Mm -hmm. And so Jiro sends snipers after Saburo and Saburo gets killed, and but Hidetora doesn't. And this brings brings in the great terror weapon of uh, 16th century Japan, which is guns, guns, guns. The uh, the Tanegashima, uh, which is basically the European arquebus, which the Japanese. Uh, received you know mid 16th century and then promptly uh not only improved on oh, yeah. but mass produced mm -hmm. in quantities that um that exceeded what europeans had they they took to to gun warfare really remarkably fast. quickly 
in this used period of civil about, war. Yeah. In this period of civil war, used it for about 50 years and then completely gave up guns to the point that when Japan was open again to the West in the 19th century, they basically had lost all knowledge of guns. Mm -hmm. So this movie is set very clearly and specifically in a period of the internal civil wars before the Edo period and is when they had the guns. And it is really interesting because I, I didn't know that history when we were watching it. I was wondering, I was thinking, this is strange. They're all running around like samurai with swords and yet, and yet they, have gun, they have guns, gun but none of the upper class did. Mm -hmm. None of the generals, none of the samurai ever handled a gun. Only, yes. their, only their lower mm -hmm. foot soldiers. Well, and they, and they developed a, a system by which they would rotate so that they could keep because it takes a while to they're they're mm. muzzle loading guns so it takes a while to load um but if you rotate your your lines right. you can um keep a yeah a, but it, a volley it was just interesting to so me that it was that you sort of in the same way they were sort of foot soldiers who were archers in europe yeah. well exactly yeah. because of the time required you wouldn't use your you know it wouldn't be the samurai who would be using the guns you need it you, you need a group you needed a large group of uh, very disciplined, uh, you know, drilled, drilled mm -hmm. soldiers to be able to make the gun gun warfare work at that point. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this scene is, I mean, we already had that incredible burning castle battle scene, mm -hmm. and this second battle scene is just as it, it it feels wrong to call it beautiful, but it was just beautiful. Well, it is it is amazing. I mean, it's you know, sort of like those biblical epics, mm -hmm. you know, a thousand mm -hmm. extras or whatever. Uh, because the, the rushing forces the, the on horseback running back and forth and shooting each other mm -hmm. and moving you know each uh, wave coming on and then mm -hmm. turning in retreat and and then the forces standing on either mm -hmm. hill watching and ready to come in and sweep down yeah and I've, I've read that um, it it may have been intended as uh, a, a reflection of nuclear warfare of the 20th century but I, I mean i think it's it's an it's the idea of you know any kind Mutually of terror sure destruction weapon. yeah, yeah um, and, and and that kind of mass slaughter mass where... slaughter it sort of reminds me of of world war one actually mm -hmm. and yeah and the trench warfare as well so yeah well the the castle scene in the middle i mean what it is it's amazingly shot and, and affecting but it's also just brutal, brutal. it's yeah. just oh my god death and death and death and people dropping and well and one thing that makes that scene so effective is that there's no uh, diegetic sound. It's just the mm -hmm. score, which mm -hmm. honestly is, is moody and but calm. Mm -hmm. And what pierces that is when Taro is killed, you hear the... The one gunshot. Yes. Yeah. And then, so jumping back to the battle scene at the end, uh, Jiro finds out that Ayabe, the warlord who did not take in his brother, is mm -hmm. attacking the first castle since nobody's protecting it. So he withdraws to the first castle. And uh, this is when things get horrible and it's it's chaotic. And so we see the general who was sent to kill Sue, who had been escaping with her brother, Tsurumaru. But because yeah, Tsurumaru forgot his flute, she gave him a scroll of the Buddha, said, this will protect you. I will go grab your flute. Yeah. Well, And they were running away because that general who had been sent to kill her had instead warned her when he had come away, back with yeah. the fox's head. He had, he had said to her, you're... You're, You're going to be trouble. killed. Run. Run. Yeah. And yes. so he'd come back. And that's why she was escaping and was going to escape. And so he went back, did his duty, and brought her head. And it's just the most painful thing to watch happen. 
No, it's, he doesn't do it. it he doesn't bring him. It was one of the other generals. Oh, yeah, or, sorry. One of the other Ronin brings her, her head back. Well, and, and they don't even, I mean, they show her the, us that, but they also show uh, after, was it after the death of Saburo that we see? Yeah, yeah, I think so. After Saburo. So before, just to backtrack a moment, uh, before he dies, before he's killed, the, the important thing in a way is that he and Hidetora reconcile. They meet. Yeah. They reconcile. He, the father begs forgiveness from the son. The son gives him forgiveness. His they start planning to. They, and... they say we're going to go off and we're going to. We have. He says we have so much to say to one another. We have so much to talk about. We have so much to 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 live for together now. Suddenly, and he mm-hmm. comes back from his madness and he's restored to some sort of sanity, and is being riding off on a mm-hmm. horse beside in, on the same horse as his son, and that's when Saburo is killed. Yeah. And, you know, because, of course, that is much more painful than mm-hmm. if he had been killed before he had met his father. And it is this, the fact that he's killed by a sniper at range, which is, again, it's... It, so, contrary to the samurai. Contrary to the yes. samurai, you know. Kind of a senseless random death. Mm-hmm. And and one without honor and without, the, you know, he doesn't even get to defend his father or his lord or anything. And then Saburo, uh, sorry, Hidetora dies of a broken heart Yeah, from that. He's not killed, but he dies of grief as Lear does as Lear does so then and we... then it's after that scene that they flash back to the scene of the that little hut that um the boy the blind boy had been living yeah, in and you see her and body. you see Sue's body and the body of the old retainer woman who had been escaping yes. with her headless yeah. lying on the ground and it was just it's the most painful thing to happen to see it's... because it's one of those scenes that's constructed in such a way you know what the reveal is going to be but you that know doesn't what you're it... gonna see it, you know, it doesn't yeah, you know as yeah. soon as she separates from her brother, you know you she's know going to she's die. Gonna die, and you know, and she, in, you know, she of, she is the most innocent of all of them, yeah. in every way. And, and yes, yeah. so they bring her head to Kaede, who is very pleased, and then she says, "Excellent." And you know, Jiro says, "Jiro says, why have you done this? You know, you've driven us all to ruin." And she says, "That was my plan all along, just mm-hmm. to seek revenge for my family." Mm-hmm. And then and reveals and, her, her motivation to Jiro, who apparently hasn't realized this until now and had, had thought that she was in love with him and various things. Yeah. Uh, and then in this very brutal scene, she gets just immediately after she says that she just gets decapitated by by the by the general she had originally told to the, the Jiro's general, who the one she had sent to do to kill to yeah. kill uh, Lady Sue. Uh, who has been arguing against her this whole time, and he just loses patience finally and draws a sword and cuts her head off in a great spray of blood. Yes, <laughs> Paints the walls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but as as the the castle is starting to become overrun anyway, and they're all pretty much doomed. Yes. So then, his two brothers being dead, Jiro gets killed in this onslaught, mm-hmm. and the movie basically ends at this point. We see Sudomaru wandering blind on the ruins of the third castle which was him and his sister's castle the one they grew mm-hmm. up in mm-hmm. he's wandering in the ruins and he almost falls off the off of a wall and he drops the scroll of the buddha that his sister gave him and he's just wandering blind with nothing and the movie just mm-hmm. ends yeah and one of the the things that i you know that's really interesting about the original lear is that um Shakespeare's source for this, which is Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which he knew in translation um, in, in Holland's head, uh, Lear 
doesn't Lear returns to the kingship. There's a, a sort of happy ending resolution. Cordelia dies. Cordelia yeah, dies, I think. But Lear doesn't. But Lear doesn't die, and he he resumes his kingship. And this is specifically a change that Shakespeare makes. Right. So that that is completely at variance with his source. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, so he, I mean, Shakespeare makes the choice of making it. And what I find is absolutely Shakespeare's bleakest play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, really you know, his no... tragedies are tragic, but this one is so bleak. Um, there's and, no redeeming character in mm-hmm. it. There's no, there's no moment of lightness. There's nothing. Yeah. And and it is it is Shakespeare's own hand, you know, that that makes it so bleak. Mm-hmm. And you know, you what you said at the beginning, John. It's true. I mean, it's that this movie is grimmer and more destructive and bleak than Lear. My only quibble with that is that because Hidetora isn't a good character, while one feels deep pity for him, there's no doubt about that. I mean, by the middle of it, when he's mad and he's wandering and, uh, you know, you are sorry for him. But he, he does kind of reap it, what he's sown in a sense. There is a certain element in which there is some kind of potential for seeing it as divine justice on all of them. I mean, the, the, the sons are bad, too, and they're punished, though Saburo, of course, is not. Um, and in fact, right at the end, Tango says to the fool, who is weeping and who is cursing the gods for having done this, uh, Tango says, no, the gods are weeping, too, but but sort of, it's not that's not consolation, um, but sort of gestures towards the idea that perhaps there is some greater divine... Mm something behind it um and and that little thread of the buddhist philosophy that kind of goes through it too Mm -hmm. suggests that a little bit i'm not saying that makes you know it a comforting or happy ending in any way it's not it's a it's a (laughs) you're left just sort of gasping for air Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. by the end of it but there's um there's just a slight difference between the person absolutely unfairly persecuted versus the person who is overly punished mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a difference in, in worldview there a little bit mm-hmm. i would say so that that was my only um it's not a quibble exactly but my my what i would say mm-hmm. about that the comparison of the feeling of the two well but that's stories. the thing about about ron is that every single character is so aggressively punished whether or not they deserved it yeah and I, that's yeah. kind of why lady suez in the movie i feel yeah, no, that's e- fair. Yeah, even the most pious, wonderful, meek, gentle, calm yeah. character mm-hmm. is, is brutally slaughtered. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's this sort of existentialist, you know, and it's a meaningless. Death. Everyone suffers, regardless of what you've done. Well, and the interesting thing is, for instance, in Lear, when or or one thing to to compare in Lear, um, so the thirty samurai that Hidetora goes around with are equivalent to the hundred men-at-arms, right? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that uh, yeah. Lear reserves to himself when he splits up his kingdom. He says, I will have a hundred men-at-arms. And there's this whole thing that goes on as he goes to the two his two daughters. The first daughter says, oh, I can't handle a hundred men-at-arms. Uh, I can only feed, you know, I can't feed all of these men. Uh, 
Well, we do send them one, but she just says, yeah, you don't really need like 100. That. You don't you, really need you, that many. You don't with... protection. I, yes. I'm protecting you. And reduces it down to 50. And then when he goes off to the other daughter, she reduces it down to nothing or whatever. But they reduce it by, you know, stripping them away. And they have to leave and go off back to their own homes or something. In this one, Hidetora, in that scene, one of the things that drives him to madness is all of his followers are slaughtered defending him as of mm-hmm. course they have to they are not just reduced because his daughter his sons say oh you don't shouldn't have them with you anymore they are slaughtered and he says they're dead they're dead defending me it's all my fault my my mm-hmm. men and he's he's extremely grief-stricken mm-hmm. by the deaths of his of his men yeah it's not just pride it's no it's it's absolute you know that these are people that i i i was responsible for them yes. and they have died yeah. on my account well, he's presumably fought with them mm-hmm. fought and, alongside and that again and... is that it, it increases that sense i mean in lear yes the main characters die lear and edgar uh, sorry and um gloucester and cordelia you know there's mm-hmm. there's some deaths but most of them survive like not the main characters but like everybody else in the kingdom i mean there's a battle yeah, i suppose right. But you don't get this sort of well. Their forces, yeah, their, their forces are defeated. You know, there is a battle between. Um, I guess it's partly because Shakespeare, you don't have that kind of sense of a battle on stage in the same way. You don't get to see a whole bunch of individuals dying because mm-hmm. that's not how a Shakespearean yeah. play. You hear, works. you hear reported, you know, mm-hmm. an offstage mm-hmm. battle between the forces of France and England. England. But in this one, with watching the just slaughter of all these people, I said to Mark at one point as we were watching, I said, you know, it's. I guess Japan is a very fertile and populous country, but like, how do they even, how did they have people left after these kind of battles? Yeah. You know, because not only do they all kill each other, but then anyone who's sort of, half of them kill themselves, you know, and it, if, if they look like they're going to lose or in various other ways, they then commit seppuku or kill themselves. And, you know, they're all slaughtering each other or themselves at every turn of the, of the, movie every moment it's to feel like how can there possibly be any adult humans left in this place after all of this violence there's just so many deaths yeah and i think at one point hiritor even says that his men died kind of purposelessly yeah exactly mm-hmm. he says how they died they, they died for no reason and it was his fault Yes. It was his fault that he let them die for no reason and that kind of you know underlies this existential mm-hmm or existentialism that we've been talking about with regards to this movie. And I saw a couple of quotes, you know, in a review that I read here or there saying, or in, in, in which Kurosawa was basically saying that this movie was his, he was looking critically at the 20th century. And, you know, we end the movie with a blind man having literally lost faith on the edge of a cliff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Kurosawa kind of using that as his reputation, representation of humanity now. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, having said it's it's somehow even more bleak than Lear, and it's you know so bleak. Like I think it's also kind of the perfect adaptation of or use of Lear to examine what has happened in the twentieth century. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree because it 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 turns the focus a little bit. I think from some of what's in Lear. Of family relationships. I mean, not that there's not family relationships in Ron. There is, of course, and it is important. But it makes it more universal. Mm-hmm. Somehow. But somehow, the the Broad. fact that there's sons and a father. I don't it, want to say it's not important, but it doesn't feel like the core. 
Yeah. But well, then it, maybe I'm, I'm misreading that because, of course, Sue and Kaide and and Sue's brother are all very concerned about their families and, and how their families have been affected and how they respond to that. So maybe I'm um, maybe I'm, I'm dismissing something that is important to the movie, but it didn't it felt less familial and more about how people just are somehow to me. <laughs> Yeah, I well, I, I think if anything, just the familial relationships only serve to underscore the intense brutality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of everybody to everybody. Yes. So it's not you know it's not that I'm I'm fighting you because, well, I, I mean the family relationship established the the way that the fight was going to happen, and Who then was it kind fight of whom? yes, and then it underscored the kind of essential uh, intrinsic base brutality that even cannot be in this case overcome by family relationships yeah yeah and i want to just go back again to the fool figure as i said he's my favorite and i also felt very much that uh my sympathy for hiritora for instance was completely focused through the fool kyo uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh that had, I mean, and that, that is Shakespearean too, of course. The Fool is very important in Lear for focusing our, our concern on Lear. But had he not cared as much for him as he did, and had he not been wrenched and heart, you know, if his, if his sorrow hadn't been so heartrending and so very undeserved, I don't think I would have felt the same degree of sorrow for his lord. Hmm. But it was his, I mean, the, the scene in the, when they were sleeping, when he, at one point says, I'm going to, this is ridiculous. I'm going to leave him. I can't, this, why am I putting myself through this? And then he can't, and then his, uh, that Hidetora, what, cries in his sleep or something. Mm. And the fool says, no, I can't. And then lies down beside him and covers him in a blanket and weeps. I mean, it was heart-wrenching. It was so sad. And and the the various scenes where he deals with his madness and he's so angry that, the, that Hidetora is mm-hmm. so mad. And he's so angry that he won't, that he can't bring himself to leave him and, and so furious at the world and so sad and, and he's just so brilliantly done. And that really, really focused the emotional intensity of the movie for me. Yeah. I I thought it really, really effectively, brilliantly expanded upon the, the role of the fool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen a couple of productions of Lear um, and I've never really seen the fool employed in such a way that it felt successful. It's kind of like Lady Macbeth in which nobody knows quite what to do with it. The fool is a hard, yeah, it's a hard role to, uh, to, to, to make explicable and understandable and meaningful, I think. And, and it's often therefore not done you're never quite sure as an audience how to take it. Yeah, but here it just did such a such a good, effective job at underscoring the um, brutal, ruthless, inexplicable nature of of I don't even want to say warfare or combat because I don't feel like that's it. Just of life. Yeah, just of existence. <laughs> that's what it felt like. Mm. Felt like it was just saying this is just what existence is. And it's brutal. Uh, yeah. 
and I also just thought the fool, I mean, just the performance as, as I'm not surprised that he was, that you tell me he was known for his dancing because again, I go back to the, I mean, I was fascinated by the body language and the use mm. of bodies and, you know, bowing and kneeling and sitting and the stillness of some of those scenes. Like when, when, um, when they first come and see Lady Kaide, when, is it at the beginning when she's there with Taro? Or later, I don't know. Any, yeah, I think it was maybe at the begin at, at some point when she's kneeling there by herself mm. and they come to tell her that her husband is dead. Oh, yes. And she's the utter stillness and then the way they kind of bring, you know, come cl come closer to her, kneeling and shuffling. Like, it's just, I don't know. There's just a, a, a an absolute precision to the way that the bodies are controlled, that everybody controls their body and moves. And then the fool is so wildly different from that it's, it's so gesticulating and dancing and, and um still very precise in, in the way he moves but completely different completely breaking all these boundaries of this very controlled um you know physicality of every other character and it just was it, it's so jarring but great so I, just, I don't know i loved him <laughs> have you ever heard of or had any experience with japanese no theater I've heard of it, but I've never actually watched it. No, I've never seen it, um, mm -hmm. but I've read a, read a bit about it. Yeah. And I, I don't want to claim to be an expert. I My main experience with it was through an anthropology performance class that I took. Right. But from what I recall about No, a lot of it is about masks using um, mm -hmm. like yeah, very stylized masks. masks masks, and very, very slow, deliberate movements punctuated by very fast, rapid ones. Okay. So I saw a lot of influence of No in this movie, uh, primarily with Lady Kaede mm -hmm. and uh, also with Hide Tora. Because, mm -hmm. and I've heard people complain about this, and I can understand, and I think it's a legitimate complaint, that the amount of heavy makeup on Hide Tora kind of took them out of the movie because it's incredibly heavy. Once he goes mad. Yes. In particular, yeah. yeah. But I, I took that as a reference to the masks of No Theater. Mm -hmm. And to actually refer to your Force Awakens podcast, <laughs> when I was watching Force Awakens, I also thought that I noticed uh, kind of a wink and a nod to no theater in the way that Kylo Ren's mask was very carefully manipulated to reflect light in such a way that it simulated facial emotions. Hmm. Because there's that kind of grill that runs around the mask and it's very you know it's shiny and reflective and at certain moments there's just a very specific calculated move of the head in such a way that it changes the light and it you know looks like an eyebrow being cocked or something like oh, okay. that right right and i you know i thought that that was like reference to no uh, especially given the extreme and very very uh you know cited and obvious uh, influence that Japan, Japanese culture and Japanese movies have had on Star Wars. Yeah. Well, and specifically Kurosawa, right? Well, yes. To that end, Kurosawa, hugely influential on, uh, on George Lucas, who, because of the Seven Samurai, decided to make the two kind of essential main characters of Star Wars be the two least important characters mm -hmm. being the two droids. Right. And even at one point in, uh, you know, Star Wars, like, you know, A New Hope, episode four about star wars uh he says the rebels hidden fortress the character who's saying that gets cut off mid-sentence and that's an allusion to the kurosawa film hidden fortress oh, okay yeah and people are going to hate me for saying this but i legitimately had this thought 
when watching the movie, but I think that the battle scene between the Gungans and the Trade Federation army of battle droids at the end of episode one was yeah. heavily influenced by the battle scene at the end of of, of Ron. Because mm-hmm. one yeah. thing that we haven't even talked about yet, but one thing that Ron does very deliberately is the use of colors to represent the three sons and their yes. warring factions. Mm-hmm. And so you get these two armies of, of samurai facing up against each other, riding horses with colored plumes on the back and holding banners. Mm-hmm. Well, the Gungans do the exact same thing when they go into war is they ride these kind of strange horse-like creatures with feathers, feathers on the back. Yeah. And and yeah. just the way that it was visually presented, like there, it is, it has to be. A nod to this. There's no way it can't be because it yeah. looks so visually similar. Yeah, I hadn't, thought, I hadn't thought, made that connection when I was watching it, but yeah, I think I'm I'm convinced. I think that that uh, it makes sense. There's there's yeah, there's a very strong um, pageantry about the uh, that battle, about all the battles, but about that battle in particular. Like, of, uh, I don't know for sure. It's not for show because they're all dying. But there's a, there's an element of show, and that's in the way the in with the Gungans, they go into war with trumpets and banners mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, all of those things, mm-hmm. pennants flying, as opposed to the faceless droid mm-hmm. forces. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the difference in that is that the two sides are opposite. Yes. Rather than uh, the same but with different colors, which you get in the in the Ron is that both sides, both sides are equally full of pageantry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing, apparently Kurosawa had basically been working on this movie for two decades and had been painting every scene. Yeah. Painting just, every just shot. A storyboard, but yeah. painting. And, but like not just storyboarding, like painting, you know, mm-hmm. as compared to just like a sketch storyboard. Yeah, like. Right. Right. And it really shows it was such a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. One thing that is often jarring for people like me who can't, came of age in a time of A, digital movie making, or B, digital color grading of traditionally filmed movies, mm-hmm. uh, is how kind of weird and flat a lot of older movies are look. And when I say older, I kind of mean anything before 1999. <laughs> and that's that's not meant to be like, you know, oh, young person, like not liking. No, or, but there was a know. big shift. There was yeah, a big, there's shift, a big in shift in technology. The first, the first movie to be entirely digitally color graded was the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which mm-hmm. they scanned everything and used a computer to change the color tone. And practically every movie since then has been filmed or edited in that way. So watching movies that then don't do that like the, the it, you just you feel the lighting differently and so for a movie that came from 1985 when you know and i love let's say rage of the lost ark but looking watching rage of the lost ark which is from 1981 like you can kind of feel that difference like it's filmed in such a way that that it it's filmed in a way that we don't film movies anymore and you can feel that when i was watching ron which was filmed in 85 like i was struck by how vibrant and light and you know how visual it was in a way that I'll just a lot of movies don't hold up well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it was harder for us to see that I think in yeah. the version we were watching. Uh, but I can see. I mean, I I think you're right, but I didn't. I wasn't struck by it quite as much as you probably were because we just weren't watching it in the way that it was intended to be shown. I think. Well, and yeah. I I had heard like a lot of negative things about the previously available digital transfer being mm-hmm. too dark hmm. uh, or kind of muddled. So 
yeah, that's so one they, thing that this restoration was seeking to restore. Yeah, no, it was a pretty. Uh, <laughs> you had one quibble with it, right, Mark? With the what, with the movie, you had one one criticism of it. It's not exactly a criticism, <laughs> but something that made it hard for you to watch. Well, yeah, the 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 sort of gruesomeness. Yeah. Um, and I guess I mean uh, I you know I think it was a it's deliberate choice. Decision, yeah. Um, but it did make it difficult in some of the scenes the battle scenes with just the amount of blood amount of blood, and blood and... spurting out of mm-hmm. things in great gouts and the man in the battle scene holding his own severed arm oh yeah oh that own... there's a reference to that in um kill bill oh yeah which has uh, its own very gruesome mass mm-hmm. battle scene i mean i th- i know that that's a, a genre thing too i yeah. mean samurai yeah. movies you know the, the the sort of there's cliches of the spurting blood and the the, well, like w- the opacity of the blood, it kind of looks like red paint. It does, yeah. yeah. It doesn't look like real blood, but but it's very nonetheless. It's the spurtiness, I think that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was very spurty. There especially was a lot with of well, especially with Lady Kaida's head, head, because yeah. you don't actually see her being decapitated because she's kind of being covered in such a way that you only see her arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you immediately see that spray of blood on the wall, and it doesn't mm-hmm. cut from that. It lingers for yeah. several lingers, more seconds. And it, it spurts several times with the, the beat of the heart. Yeah, yeah. It's not just one spray of blood. It's more than one. Yeah. Um, I it, it was a... You know, this isn't a criticism. This is a commendation. But it was a hard film to watch, I found. We watched it over two nights because it was long, and we were watching it in the evening, uh and got tired and couldn't watch it longer. So we watched it over two nights, which is of course not ideal. Um, but it was when we turned it on to watch the second half. I mean, I really wanted to watch it. I had been very much caught up in it uh, by the halfway through. I, you know, I wanted to watch and see what was happening, but we'd already gone through only an hour and a half and so many horrible things had happened to so many people already. And I don't think Hinatora was even, crazy yet or he'd just gone mad you know and we knew there was so much more misery to come even though i wanted to watch it i part of me was like oh we have to watch the rest of this movie now <laughs> because i just knew how wrenching it was clearly going to be because of how wrenching it had already been it was a you know the lots of jarring scenes and 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 gruesome stuff it was a it was a difficult movie for me um even you know, knowing what was coming and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which is a praise, but it was a hard movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, what What's incredible about this movie as well is apparently Kurosawa, who was 74 at the time, was basically blind. Hmm. Oh. Like, apparently his vision had, gone, had, had deteriorated to right. a large extent. And it's just such an incredibly precise movie as well. Mm-hmm. And all of the battle scenes and the way that they're shot and the fact that they burned down a castle and filmed a man walking out of it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand how you could accomplish that <laughs> if you're compromised of vision, you know? Like, Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. You certainly would, couldn't possibly know that from what it looks like. Well, I, I would imagine he had a good director of photography yeah, yes, so yes. to watch all of those to work things. with. Yeah. I mean, it's not a solo work, of course. But yeah, it... It was uh, it's a pretty impressive piece of, of cinema. There's no getting around that. <laughs> and ultimately, you know, we can we can debate the finer points of how explicitly it sticks to or does not stick to King Lear. Um, but ultimately, this 
is so representative of what I love about something like Shakespeare, which is this culture of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Because beyond Shakespeare, I don't really feel like we have that very strongly in in, in dramatic culture in like contemporary English what am I trying to say in pop culture like we don't really have that right now mm-hmm. and that's something that's really strong in like the world of opera nobody makes an opera anymore that's about that's true to, <laughs> true to face it's always like oh here's an interpretation of Marriage of Figaro set in the Spanish Civil War or something and right. I really love interpretation and it was just such an incredible example of the power of interpretation mm-hmm. yeah I agree yeah I was I'm very glad to have watched it me it. too I'm so I, I'm glad I kind of arbitrarily picked it at a time <laughs> when I would have and then ended up getting able to see it because I wouldn't have found out that it was going to be at a movie theater if I had not casually mentioned <laughs> that I was going to watch it to a co-worker and definitely would not have seen it so I am still floored by this movie and at multiple points while watching it and then while riding the subway home was on the verge of tears because of what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And I'm sincerely thinking about going to see it again in theaters, like before it leaves. Yeah. Even if that means two times in a week, just because like it was such an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. And it was very timely for me because I just was in the middle of doing a video on Japan that is largely deals with this period Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was sort of familiar with the historical context mm-hmm. for it. And I was not, but have now learned about it, <laughs> thanks to Mark's video <laughs> and him telling me lots of things, too. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it, so, it, it was a good, it was a well-timed. So I don't know if we want to get into the habit of ranking the films we've watched, but this is definitely <laughs> the best one so far. yeah. I, I mean, I will never uh, not love Much Ado, but it's very, I, I, I hesitate to even try to compare the two movies. They're they, so different. So yeah, they were trying to do such different things that they were both very successful at what they were trying to mm-hmm. do. Let's put it that way. So I, well, I will watch Much Ado more often than I will watch Ron. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Only watch Ron when you need your soul destroyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas I watch Much Ado to make me happy and joyous in the world. <laughs> I first heard about Ron when I was in 11th grade, um, I guess so 10 years ago now. My Asian studies teacher, who was obsessed with Kurosawa, was talking about his versions of Macbeth and Ron. And he said... Ron is such a bleak film. You don't watch it when you're sad. You can only watch it when you're incredibly happy because otherwise it's just going to ruin you. <laughs> well, Mark did say yesterday as we were discussing it that the central lesson from the movie... Yeah. Trust no one. <laughs> just no one. Never trust nothing and no one. Everyone's out to get you. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> if you want to be able to come away from something with that view of the world confirmed it is human nature to be well it's 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 like yeah nasty brutish and short (laughs) that's that's life that's that's life human nature is is terrible (laughs) i took a much more pragmatic response to it which is i think that lear and ron together have just told us don't exile people (laughs) but like since i don't think i'll ever be in the position to choose whether or not to exile people that's not a particularly useful moral (laughs) (laughs) So well, I'll apply it in life. I will make sure never to exile anyone because it goes wrong. Horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, hopefully you'll never have to exile anybody. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody sensible would give me the power to do such a thing, so I don't think it's going to happen. So next time, we're going to watch our suggestion, our mutual suggestion from Mark and me is for Macbeth, speaking of Macbeth as we have been, the Fassbender version just coming out onto home video so home video aren't home we video. old <laughs> you getting coming your... out on itunes <laughs> well coming out on itunes are you, are you driving to the store and getting your betamax <laughs> yeah, yeah, <sorry. laughs> well, i don't know i mean we'll just go and watch it in a drive-in theater together um <laughs> there's a drive-in at home that i go to every time i visit my mom oh i've actually never have i been to i think i went to a drive-in a few months Oh, yeah, that could be. I've never been that back in Britannia. Um, (laughs) It's it's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, there just aren't any anymore. Um, No, so The Fast Bender Macbeth comes out on, yeah, in various ways. Uh, It was from 2015, but it's going to become available in March. And we wanted to watch it. April. Is it April? No, March. You're right. March, March 6th. And we're going to watch it so that I guess it'll be before. Um, but it just in to we should get the episode out just a bit before uh the four hundredth anniversary of Shakespeare's death, right, which is April twenty third, two thousand sixteen. So yeah, so we thought that this would be a good one. It would be, we thought it would be nice to watch one that's a pretty straight version of a play to celebrate his. Uh, death day which happens to also be his, uh, his birthday, his birthday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than an interpretation so that was our plan so that's going to be the one and none of us of course have seen it because it hasn't been available I don't think it I don't think it showed in theater did it no, show in theaters that, in North America well maybe but probably limited release I yeah don't I didn't I didn't, I'm, I didn't see it so yeah. yeah so we can all get our hands on that and watch it before next time Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure in the next few weeks and months, I'm going to have a thousand more things to say about Ron. But <laughs> well, we can do follow up next time, I promise. And that's what Twitter's for. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. Bye. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.